Welcome to The Sword and the Trowel. The Sword and the Trowel is a podcast of Founders Ministries, and Founders exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of local churches. I'm Tom Askell. And I'm Graham Gundon. Good to have you with us again today as we look forward to having another conversation, thinking from the scripture to our life situations and trying to sort out the best ways to apply God's word to those situations. And today we wanted to have a conversation about passivism. But before we do, we want to remind you about a couple of things that are coming up. So if you haven't been keeping up or if you have, we just want to remind you that the Institute of Public Theology is about to launch its second year. So our fall classes begin in just a couple of weeks. Actually, I guess it's next week, beginning on the 8th of August, we have Ben Dunson here to teach on public, no, not public theology, political Political theology, theology, which uh, Graham and I were talking earlier, and this is an area that Baptists need to develop. Uh, rigorously and quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we're behind the ball on this, and we're looking forward to having Dr. Dunson, who is the head of the American Reformer, come and challenge us from Scripture and instruct us about this. So this is a great opportunity. If you would like to listen to those lectures, you can do so by becoming an auditor. They will be live-streamed for auditors. Just go to the Institute of, or Institute of Public Theology.org and get more information on that. Then the week after, we've got Richard Barcellus here, and uh, Dr. Barcellus will be teaching a course on hermeneutics, which is kind of his sweet spot. Uh, Rich has worked through a lot of the issues over many, many years now, I could say decades now, mm-hmm. in trying to refine and think carefully about how we approach the scriptures. Uh, his uh, hermeneutical method is one that has been beneficial to many students that he's taught uh, literally around the world over the last 20 years. So I encourage you to sign up for that as well. If you want to know more about the Institute of Public Theology, contact us, go to the website. We think it is a wonderful endeavor, timely and important, and we'd love to have you become a full-time student or become an auditor, and especially pastors. We have a special deal for pastors if you'd like to audit either of these courses. Yeah, and if you've not read uh, Dr. Sparcellus' book, Getting the Garden Right, it's an excellent book. Right there. Hey, there it is. Look at yeah. that. It's very uh, good looking as well. Yeah. Uh, but you can get that on the bookstore at founders.org as well. That's right. And, and in that book, you'll see his method. And he lays it out clearly. And it is a powerful book to help us think about the whole of Revelation and uh, why we are Baptists, because mm-hmm. he, he does a good job with that as well. Oh, let me mention Convocation. That's the 13th. That's Saturday. August 13th, Ben Dunson will be staying over, and our second convocation for IOPT will be on that Saturday morning, 10 o'clock. If you're in the area, you're invited to come. We would like you to RSVP so that we can anticipate your presence. Well, passivism, Christian Mm -hmm. passivism, has been some talk uh, lately due to a a conversation that I think was hosted by the Gospel Coalition. Is that right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, and I didn't watch that conversation completely. I did see clips of it that Mm -hmm. circulated on social media, and it just provoked a lot of thought in my own mind because I've just finished working through um, Romans 13, 1 through 7, and I've read Lloyd-Jones. He's got 11 sermons on those verses, and one of those uh, sermons deals extensively with passivism. And so I was helped and encouraged by uh, some of his thinking there. You and I have had a brief conversation about that this morning as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, Graham, you come from a tradition, right, of Christian pacifists. So why aren't you a pacifist? Yeah, I I grew up Mennonite. um, And it's interesting, Mennonites are nonconformists, right? 
but my own family line within Mennoniteism also was nonconformist within the Mennonite branch. So <laughs> my grandfather actually attempted to drive down to, to, to Detroit to uh, enlist to go out to war during World War II. Wow. His brothers drove down after him and kidnapped him and brought him back home. Is so, that right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> little family history yeah. there. That she has and then my, my brother uh, went into the Marine Corps when I was young. And so we have a, a tradition of uh, rejecting the pacifism of the Mennonite tradition. You know, I'm very grateful to the Mennonite tradition and a sure. lot of great people there. And um, pacifism does tend to be the most significant uh, piece of their uh, system of thought. Um, and I, I do think it's unfortunate that it is. And, and I think it's well-intentioned. Uh, but I myself and my family have never really, really been there, never really mm-hmm. bought into pacifism. Yeah, and, and just recently, I think it was a week or so ago, Ron Sider died. And mm. uh, Sider was a, a big pacifist and promoted that. Um, yeah, what was his book? Speak Your Peace or something like that was the title of his book, in which he addresses it pretty significantly. Um, Jim Wallace, another, you know, kind of these are socially leftist uh, mm-hmm. folks who also advocate pacifism and. I know Sider took a lot of cues from Gandhi and yep. tried to follow him in the, the um, non-violent resistance, and it's been a it's been a tradition within broad Christian thinking, and we see some evidence for that. There are arguments that are made by Christian pacifists on why we should not take arms um, up, we should not even engage in self-defense, we shouldn't participate in any kind mm-hmm. of war. So you read the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, hey, if somebody strikes you on your right cheek, then turn to him the left also. Mm-hmm. I mean, isn't that pacifism? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's interesting also just kind of going back to the um, historicity of it all. I, I would never claim that all pacifists are leftists or anything like that. But within the own, my own tradition that I come from in, in Mennonitism, um, you know, you look at Goshen College, you look at Eastern Mennonite University, really the kind of the two big mm-hmm. universities um, in that tradition. Uh, pacifism really did seem to be the catalyst for liberalism with, because uh, you think about Mennonites today and the majority of them are liberals um, mm-hmm. rejecting some really um, central doctrines of the Christian faith. Now there are some good conservative Mennonites, but pacifism seemed to have driven them into that liberalism. Mm, that's interesting. That's a fascinating thought. I, I want to make a distinction too between pacifism and, and conscientious objections mm-hmm. because you cannot be a pacifist or, or be uh, someone who doesn't agree with pacifism but nevertheless conscientiously object to participating in certain wars yeah and this raises the whole specter of what's been debated and refined and discussed uh through most of christian history about a just war theory mm-hmm. come down to us today in several tenets mm-hmm. of uh, here's if you're going to Uh, If a state is going to engage in war, then it needs to be done justly, and justice should be measured with these principles. There's there's no universal agreement on all of this that I've been able to find, and uh, there are nuances within each one of these seven or eight principles that Mm -hmm. have been articulated throughout history, but they're worth considering because Romans 13 indicates that the magistrate is God's deacon. He's God's minister to administer justice, to punish evil, those who do evil. And certainly, uh, that's that includes to uh, protect the nation, protect the citizens, those under the magistrate's authority in the civil arena from both internal and external threats. Mm-hmm. And so I would say, yes, of course, states have the right and sometimes the responsibility to carry out warfare 
but that doesn't give them the right to just go roughshod, uh, spilling blood anywhere right. and everywhere. Well, that would be, um, I think, what's normally thought of as the third um, item or or category in just war theory, that it has to be, uh, a war must be waged by a legitimate authority, mm-hmm. uh, a civil magistrate. Um, but you're right, just because you are a legitimate authority does not mean that you're exercising your authority legitimately. That's right. And, and there are different authority levels as well. Mm-hmm. And this this gets into what we talked about before, uh, the principle of lesser magistrates or that mm-hmm. doctrine, so that the magistrates that are closer to the people have the greater obligation of protecting those people, not just from external threats, but internal threats as well, which may well come from higher civil authorities. And, and I think this plays into some of what happened in the American Revolution. Right. Right. and how that was carried out, and uh, in other places throughout history where you've seen local communities under legitimate civil authorities who have resisted, even rebelled against the greater civil mm-hmm. authority because of unjust laws, unjust actions. So it's, a, it's not a simple thing to think about, but it's something Christians must think about because we are called to obey those who have authority over us. Mm-hmm. And the, when the authority over us says, okay, we're going to war, we're instituting a draft, and if you're drafted, then you must take up arms and go to war. Well, Christians need to think about that, not mindlessly say, okay, the government drafted me, I've got to go fight, right. or say, well, no, I'm not going to do that because I don't think it's right for Christians to fight. you yeah. got to think deeply about these things. Yeah, that whole um, doctrine of the lesser magistrate, that's, that's why it's important that we understand what we are as a federalist nation. We're a covenantal nation in which we do have lesser um, authorities, lesser magistrates. Um, yeah, and then, and then the, the whole idea, you know, is this a just <coughs> war? Is there a just cause behind this? You know, mm-hmm. like you said, I don't have to be a pacifist to have a conscientious objection to fighting in this particular war. Mm-hmm. And, you know, is it a just war? Am I, is my nation merely seeking more wealth or more territory? Mm-hmm. Is my nation ne- merely seeking vengeance upon mm-hmm. another nation or another civilization? Um, those are not just causes for war. Right. And we've seen uh, reasons to question some of the military actions that we've lived through just in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, wondering uh, what exactly is going on. I, I have some uh, very thoughtful thoughtful men that I respect tremendously who took strong exception to the first Gulf War Mm. and uh, who thought that that was not a legitimate action in response to what had happened in the United States and around the world in that region. And um, they objected to it and they, they argued for other Christians to object to it. I wasn't clear enough in my own thinking to side with them, but I was certainly willing to listen to their arguments and realize they were making some cogent arguments, whether they were convincing or not. Um, I have other friends that were not nearly convinced, and I was certainly open mm-hmm. to what they were saying. So these are issues that have to be faced, have to be confronted on that level of being citizens in a civil arena, but then even more personally. Right. So what do you do if somebody is breaking into your house at night? Yeah. You know, do you call the police, hope for the best? Do you hide and hope for the best? Do you say, here I am, kill me, you know, because I'm going to be with Jesus? I mean, what's the right attitude for a Christian to take in this? Uh, we're not left on our own yeah. to think about that. We do have an example from the Old Testament scriptures in um, Exodus 22. And again, we're not advocating that all the Old Testament laws are to be taken up and impl- and, and just carried over to uh, new covenant civil magistries, 
but we do recognize that there is legitimate righteousness. There uh, is this general equity in those laws. And here's one of them in Exodus 22, verses 2 and 3. It says, if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun is risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. And so the idea is, all right, there is a time and place where you can legitimately take another life mm-hmm. in the defense of life. Yeah. Sometimes that Christians don't get that. They, they will appeal to the sixth commandment, you shall not kill. So we have no reason killing at all. Mm-hmm. But that's a misreading of, of what is actually written in that commandment. Yeah, you know, the Westminster Larger Catechism in question um, – 136 is really helpful in this. It, it asks the question, what sins are forbidden in the sixth commandment? And well, of course you answer, well, murder is forbidden in the sixth commandment. Uh, but that's not all. It, the confession or the catechism goes on to say, the sins forbidden in the sixth commandment are all taking away the life of ourselves, so suicide, of others, murder, except in the case of public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense, and then also the neglecting or withdrawing the lawful and necessary means of preservation of life. Mm. So if you have a lawful and a necessary means to preserve the life of another, and then you neglect to preserve that life, the the catechism here says that's uh, that's transgressing the sixth commandment because the sixth commandment is all about protecting life. That's right, and and that even goes into uh, gets into the debates about um, whether firearms should be. Mm-hmm. legalized and made available or not, or whether there, there should be gun control in any form or how much that control should be exercised. And again, Christians can disagree on that, and especially our Christian brothers in other nations. You know, mm-hmm. we, we have a culture here in the United States where um, we've had access because of the Second Amendment to um, be armed. And many Americans take advantage of that and recognize that as a civil right, and they want to defend that. And I would be among them. I would say, yes, I think that's a legitimate civil right and could go to the Sixth Commandment right. and reason, as the, the, the catechism does, to that conclusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you also go, you can go to Romans uh, 13 as well. Um, what are the what are the responsibilities of the state to its citizens? The responsibilities of the state to its citizens are first to punish the evildoer mm-hmm. for the protection of the life and the property of its citizens. And so really fundamental to the role of the state as ordained by God is the protection of its citizens. And so for the state to um, prohibit the, its citizens from defending themselves, uh, with the most um, ordinary means of that defense today, which would be a firearm. Mm-hmm. Whether that's from, you know, we talk a, a lot in, in the U.S. about defending ourselves against tyranny. You know, if our if our own nation, you know, could never happen, became tyrannous. <laughs> um, but you know, also against, also against um, a criminals, right? Yeah. You defending yourself against criminals, defending yourself against wild beasts. You know, mm-hmm. we have friends in Alaska who have to carry large firearms with them to protect themselves from grizzly bears and what have you. Um, for a, a civil magistrate to prohibit a citizen from defending themselves in that way, I think, according to biblical principles, that's unjust, and that's, that is a forsaking of their responsibility to their citizens. Absolutely. And we do, again, we see this acted out in the Old Testament. This is, I was reading Lloyd-Jones uh, during my foray through the uh, Romans 13 passage, and it's fascinating. Uh, to see his arguments against 
pacifism. You know, he said it's just ludicrous to be a pacifist, basically. And he does cite Old Testament examples of war where God prescribed war, where God prescribed the taking of life. And he says it, it, pacifism cannot be a universal truth given that. Well, you go back to the Old Testament, you look at places like Nehemiah, whenever they were being threatened racially because of the folks around them that didn't want that wall being rebuilt, mm-hmm. what did Nehemiah do? He armed, not it wasn't a militia, you know, it wasn't, wasn't a formally trained military operation. These were families. And he said, okay, you keep a trowel in one hand, you keep a sword in the other hand, which is a great name for a podcast, <laughs> and you carry out the work. And yeah. so you've got that. And then also um, in Esther, you know, you got wicked Haman who wanted to just exercise genocide and wiping out the Jews throughout the kingdom and got a Ahasuerus to, to agree to that. And whenever he was exposed and hanged then, well, you still have this law of the Medes and Persians that right. cannot be rescinded and broken. Right. And so on this day, all the Jews are going to be annihilated. What do they do? Well, Mordecai comes up with a plan that the king approves of that the Jews can arm themselves and kill anybody mm-hmm. that comes after them. Right. Okay, well, there it is in God's word, uh, uh, a policy of self-defense that was celebrated then uh, in generations to come. Yeah, and you know, there's a there's a bit of a, dare I say, nuance to this. You know, the uh, there's a difference between self-defense and defense of others, defense right. of loved ones. And so you go back to your example of, you know, somebody breaks into your home in the middle of the night. Well, it's different if you're a single person living on your own. Mm-hmm. But if you have a wife, if you have children, right? Okay, your your responsibility is heightened. Yeah. And, you know, I remember when I was younger, first thinking through these issues, trying to um, determine what, okay, what would I do in these situations? Uh, you know, naively, sometimes you think, okay, well, when once they break in, you turn on the lights and say, hold on just a second. What are you, what are you trying to do here? You just want to take my money and stuff? Okay, well, fine. I'll give you my money. <laughs> yeah. As long as you're not trying to kill me. You know, that's not an option that you have and you don't know what they're trying to do. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, if, if you know for certain, all they want to do is rob you, like, you know, these are possessions that the Lord has given me. You're not taking my life, but you just don't know that, you know, somebody pulls a knife on you. Somebody pulls a gun on you. You don't know if they just want your wallet. Maybe they want to take your wallet and then kill you. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, we have a right to defend ourselves even to the point of lethality um, in cases like robbery. Yeah. Yeah. This, uh, my, my, Attitude began to shift on this uh, when I was a young pastor and just moved to Cape Coral, been here about a year or two. And my brother, who's also a pastor, uh, he was far advanced of me in thinking about this. And so his whole family was armed, you know, and we'd go to his house and shoot and enjoy shooting his, his uh, armament. But I'd, I used to ridicule him saying, you know, we don't trust God very much because, you know, you think you got to have guns and we're, we're not going to have any guns in my home. And one night my wife and I were going to bed and at, she was sleeping next to the window, and we hear this tap, tap, tap. And we had two little kids, like three and two years old, three and one-year-old, and heard this tap on the window, and I didn't hear it quite. I was almost asleep, and she said, somebody's tapping. She woke me up, and so I listened. Sure enough, man, you hear this tap, 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 and uh, she had the light on because she was reading, so we turned off that light. I remember sneaking out of bed, going down the hallway, back in the days of landline phones, and get on the phone, dialing 911, and saying, you know, somebody in, outside of our window tapping, you know. And uh, so they said, okay, just stay on the phone, stay on the phone. Well, about 15 minutes later, uh, the police show up, and, you know, the guy's gone. And they just said, yeah, this looks like footprints here, you know. And, yeah, we see, you know, evidence there's some bubble gum or something they spit out. 
And so they said, well, it's probably just a prank. You know, don't worry about it. So we would go back to bed. I mean, adrenaline's flowing. And uh, about 20 or 30 minutes later, tap, tap, tap. And I got so angry. So I snuck out. I went out. I didn't have a weapon. I went out. I had a piece of rebar in the garage. <laughs> and I went and got that rebar, called the cops again. And I said, I'm about to shove this thing through the window because somebody is out there, you know, trying to get in my house or arouse us in some way. So this time the police got there in about three or four minutes. And there were two cars that came in from opposite directions. We had a field next to us. It was empty. And they came squealing into this field, man. And this guy took off. And they chased him, never found him. But from that, it dawned on me, I was defenseless. I mean, Mm -hmm. this could have been a big guy, could have been multiple guys. And I couldn't have adequately defended my family with that. Mm -hmm. And so that's began my thinking to shift on what does it mean to defend my family? I'm responsible to protect my family. And if I don't do that, if I don't provide for them in that way, uh, I'm failing in my duty. And so, yeah, weapons, I think, are legitimate for Christians to possess. Particularly as a, a, a husband and a father to provide and protect for your family. And you cannot just cede all of that responsibility to the state. I mean, the tragedy of Uvalde, Texas has shown us that, that (sighs) the state is not always capable of protecting its citizens. Um, And and it seems as though they're increasingly uh, less capable of protecting its citizens. I mean, as the murder rates skyrocket, as we see more mass shootings and things like that, civilians need to be able to protect themselves. And so the, the day that we live in, the way in which you would protect yourself is not brass knuckles. You know, it's not a knife. It, it is a mm-hmm. firearm. Yeah. Psalm 82, three and four says that we are to deliver the weak and the needy from the hand of the wicked. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, uh, you know, you might be able to do that if you're black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu or something like that, where you, you can do it hand to hand. But for most people, uh, that's going to require some leverage yeah. that, evens the playing field against evil and wicked people who are trying to do violence against those who uh, would be weak or would be needy in that situation. So uh, I am fully convinced that uh, there's nothing unbiblical about having a firearm. In fact, I think it is biblical. Mm -hmm. Jesus asked his disciples as they're going to the garden that night where he's going to be betrayed and ultimately crucified, if you don't have a sword, sell your tunic Mm -hmm. and buy one. And I find that fascinating because they say, well, we have two. And he says, it's enough. And I've read various commentaries on this. Some of them make the case, well, he's just saying, ah, it's enough. You know, I can't believe you guys still don't get it type of thing. Well, he talks about a knapsack and, and uh, I forget the other item there that he says you need to have. But there's nothing metaphorical about this. Mm-hmm. These are real swords. Mm-hmm. And then when Peter takes his sword out and tries to tape off, take off the head of Malchus and misses and just gets his ear um, Jesus does rebuke him, but he doesn't say, throw your sword away. Mm-hmm. He says, put it back in its sheath. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus at least approved of his disciples walking with him, being armed. He doesn't rebuke them. In fact, he tells them, you need a sword. And they go there, and when the sword is used, he's on a mission to lay down his life sacrificially. And when Peter tries to thwart that mission, he rebukes Peter in light of that mission. So don't you know, I could, I could handle this. I don't mm-hmm. need you uh, to do this. But that is not a repudiation of using a weapon. I don't think there's any way you can frame that. In fact, uh, Lloyd-Jones, let me just read to you what he says about using that because that debate on uh, TGC, the fella, 
use that about uh, Jesus's own laying down his life. Yeah. And, you know, Peter says, just like Peter in the garden, whenever you yeah. take up weapons. Listen to Lloyd-Jones. He says, if pacifists use the death of our Lord as an argument for their position, they are simply displaying their ignorance about the reasons for his death. So you can't reason from what Jesus did there leading up to his death and rebuking Peter, then laying down his own life and saying, okay, you know, that means that we must be pacifistic in the face of violence and evil. Yeah, it the sixth commandment and, and really the second great commandment does require um, to be aggressive in the protection of the life of others. Um, but there are exceptions when it comes to self-defense, right? Yeah, right? You know, Ephesians 5 says, you know, husbands love your wives as you love your own body. So there is a love we should have for our own bodies. And there's a way in which we should protect our own bodies against uh, violence that would be done against our, ourselves. Um, but there are exceptions to that. Mm-hmm. What are the exceptions? Yeah, well, uh, I think of the, the mid-century martyrs of the 20th century. You know, Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, and uh, their friends, when the Alka Indians uh, killed them uh, in the aftermath and trying to figure out what happened and reconstruct the scenario, well, these guys were armed. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were killed with spears, and they had sidearms. Mm-hmm. So they could have taken out their murderers. But they didn't do that. They were there for the sake of the gospel. They were trying to bring the gospel to people who did not know Christ, had no access to the gospel, and they died as martyrs. And I think they were following Christ in that, and it's commendable, and it's right. So I make a distinction between the uh, threat or the, the violence that would come against me as I am trying to proclaim Christ and spread the gospel. You know, you will be persecuted in this world because you're my followers. Mm-hmm. Okay, I want to accept that mm-hmm. personally. Uh, certainly there's a difference between that and walking down the street and somebody br- pulling a gun and say, you know, give me all your money, I'm going to kill you, or I'm going to kill your wife, whatever. Those are different scenarios. There's also a difference between me protecting my wife, my friends, or even a stranger that I see. I do feel an obligation for that. So I, we've trained our, our young men that, look, uh, if you're walking down the road and you see uh, a child, a woman, or, or somebody who's being beaten to death or being threatened, you're obligated. You mm-hmm. know, you're the good Samaritan in this situation. You must engage, and that may mean – Given your situation, you dial 911, but it may mean you go there and you mix it up uh, with them. And I wouldn't try to write a rule for everybody in every circumstance right. of life regarding that, but you have an obligation. You can't just look away and, and go your own way. So there's a difference between protecting others and protecting yourself. There's a difference between protecting yourself if you are you know, in the middle of Damascus preaching the gospel and crazed Muslims come running at you to mm-hmm. kill you. Uh, I wouldn't take up arms. I would mm-hmm. hope I wouldn't take up arms yeah. in that situation to defend myself. I hope I would die willingly for the sake of Christ. And that's different than walking down the street yeah. being threatened. I think there's one other category that we haven't really discussed much. And that would be the case of executions of criminals by the state. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is that wrong? Yeah, not at all. Uh, I think Genesis nine makes it very clear that whoever sheds man, man's blood must have his own blood shed because he is killing an image bearer. He's murdered an image bearer. This is one of the things that the sixth commandment ties into directly. I don't think we think real clearly about today to murder someone with a high hand, premeditated violence, vengeful, however it's motivated to murder someone is not just taking the life of a human being. It's attacking God because this human being is made in the image of God. And that's true for the vilest 
human being. And so we are never free individually to take vengeance on anyone, but that doesn't mean vengeance doesn't belong on the murderer. It certainly does. And it, when you read Romans 13, one through seven, and you go back and read the last verses of chapter 12, you see that Paul admonishes us that we are not to take vengeance for ourselves. That's, that's never a Christian's right or responsibility or privilege. Uh, mm-hmm. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. He will repay. That's to be our attitude. And so the state is one way that God executes vengeance in history, in the here and now, the day's coming when he will execute vengeance perfectly, righteously. All sin would be punished. There will be no more sin, no more crime, and everything will be made right. But until that day, the state, the magistrate, has been given the sword by God to execute his vengeance on those who do evil in this world. And the state has that responsibility. I do not have that responsibility. This is an, another tough uh, challenge, but it's the Christian call. So if I have to take someone's life in defending life, if I have to go to war to fight a just war as a citizen of an earthly kingdom, I should do that with no animosity and no hatred toward the person whom I'm contending against. Yeah. And in modern sensitivity, so, oh, well, that's just silly. Well, no, that's the word of God. Yeah. You know, I'm to love my enemies. So here's the scenario that Christians are called to possibly face one day. And that is that you would have to kill somebody that you love. Yeah. You, you, you love them, and yet you're willing to take their life in defense of other life. Yeah, C.S. Lewis makes that point. I don't remember if it's in Mere Christianity or if it's in his essay, Why I'm Not a Pacifist, both of which would be great reading on this topic. Um, but yeah, it, it is legitimate to kill someone, and you can't. It's not a contradiction. You can still love that person and kill them. Take That's their right. Life. You know, this isn't an exact uh, parallel, but when David had to send out his troops after Absalom because Absalom had led an insurrection against him and David didn't want Absalom killed, but Absalom had to be stopped. And so force was used. And uh, when he got the report that Absalom had died, he obviously was brokenhearted. He, he loved him, but as the magistrate, he had to defend his kingdom. Mm-hmm. He had to defend from what Absalom was attempting to bring about. So, yeah, as Christians, we're called to love. We need to have a right understanding of love that's rooted in the Scripture, not rooted in the uh, modern sensibilities of what constitutes love and proper affection, and then carry out the duties that we have, which we would argue includes defending life, defending innocent life. And that goes across the board. I do think the Westminster Larger Catechism uh, instructions on the Sixth Commandment are very, very helpful here. And uh, if you're not familiar with that, I encourage you to, to read that and to meditate on that. And then to see the difference between individual responsibility and the state. Mm-hmm. God has given to the state the authority to carry out his vengeance against evildoers. Right. He's not given that authority to the church. That's right. So there's a distinction there. But the church can still call the state to do that which is righteous. Absolutely. And he's not giving that authority to individuals. Mm-hmm. So we don't carry out vengeance. Right. But that doesn't mean we don't carry out defense. Mm-hmm. That we cannot use violence in the effort of defending innocent life, defending the poor, defending the needy, defending those who would be unjustly taken advantage of by violent people. Mm-hmm. So we're not to be those whose feet are swift to shed blood. The Lord hates those who do that, and we're not called to be that. We shouldn't be violent people at all. And when we have to take up and engage in violence in a defensive 
uh, effort to protect innocent life, we should do so. Guarding against vengeance. You know, you don't work yourself into a, a, a lather and then say, I'm just going to take this guy's head off because I, I hate him and uh, I'm mad and I'm going to get my uh, pound of flesh. It's, we don't, that's never something that Christians are free to pursue, but we must labor to love in a way that we're willing to do whatever God says in defending life. And if we have to do that, then um, it's a, it's a grievous and, and sad thing. One of the interesting things, just statistically speaking, John Lott's done tremendous work on this is show the defensive use of handguns in the United States. Most of it goes unreported mm. and it's overwhelmingly the case that I forget five, 10 to one or something that firearms are used without ever having to be employed. You don't have to pull the trigger mm. to withstand criminal activity. And so just the threat of being resisted causes criminals to back off. Walking softly and carrying a big stick. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Well, tough subject, but mm-hmm. it's a subject that uh, Christians can't avoid thinking about. And again, we have uh, many, every time there's a horrific shooting in our nation, people will begin to say, oh, we've got to have gun control laws. We've got to disarm, disarm the citizenry. And uh, I think that certainly disarming citizens is uh, an illegitimate prospect for Christians in the United States. Again, I know other countries that don't have any kind of um, background and experience really with owning weapons like this, that it's hard for them to conceive. We've got some friends even from other countries have come over and the first time I ever shot a gun was here in the United States. It was like, you know, wow. In your backyard? Well, not quite in my backyard, (laughs) but nevertheless. And yeah, I get that. I get that. And I'm willing to listen to them. But here in the United States, given the fact that we have a constitutional republic and embedded in the Bill of Rights, the very second one of those rights is the recognition to bear arms, to keep and bear arms. And it comes from a biblical worldview. Uh, I think we've tried to at least point out some of the places in Scripture where that case can be made, and I'm willing to take my stand there. So sell your cloak. <laughs> Buy a nine sword. mil. <laughs> That's the nine millimeter of the day. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening to the Sword and Trial. Uh, we welcome any comments that you might have. If you are um, want to ask questions, we'll try to address those too. If you get them to us by email is the best way. And come to the conference coming up in January. If you've appreciated the Sword and the Trial Founders Ministries, then encourage others to listen to this, like this, share it, become a subscriber. Uh, we would love to have you on board in any ways that we can serve you. It'd be our joy to do so. Let me mention one other thing. I think I was supposed to do this at the beginning. Hannah gave me this book, and I forgot to say anything about it. <laughs> but we've got this little booklet. We're starting a new series of booklets, small books. This is called The Necessity of Accommodation and the Danger of Compromise in the Life and Ministry of the Church. Uh, it's something that I put together, I don't know, 30 years ago or so, and I've passed out probably hundreds and hundreds of copies of my manuscript. I've uh, presented this in different places and finally was able just to kind of put it together in this small booklet. So it's it's some of the most practical help that I've ever received in thinking through how to distinguish between how far do you go in accommodating ignorance and weakness and misunderstanding versus not willing to budge one inch yeah. in order to compromise what God said. So I encourage uh, you to get this. I think it's on sale for $5 and you can get it through Founders. Thanks for listening. <laughs>